One of the things I love about this church is we have uh, lots of people here who are exploring. Maybe you'd consider yourself spiritually unresolved. And we want Faith Chapel to be a very safe place to encounter a very dangerous message. All right? So it's a safe place to explore a message that could literally change your life and mess up everything in a good way. And then we also have... I love there's generations of people that come here. There's a lot of families that grandparents, kids, and grandkids are all at the same church. So I'm grateful for that. We're in this, uh, finishing this series called Keep Hope Alive. And it's just been from one chapter in the Bible, three weeks, the book of 1 Peter, the first chapter. And a little bit of a context is this. It's probably 63 AD, late 62 AD. And Peter is writing this book from Rome. He has been imprisoned. For the first 30 years, the disciples of Jesus, so they didn't really call themselves Christians, that came a little bit later, um, experienced unprecedented. Like, I just don't know if you could find anything else in human history where a group of people experienced such favor and such growth. And so at maximum, there seemed to have been about 500 people who were very close to Jesus and um, engaged him after his resurrection. But it's in kind of the backwater. It's in this little part of the Roman Empire known as Israel or Palestine. And it's only 500 people, and they're not terribly highly educated or influential. But in 30 years, 30 years, without the internet, without printing presses, the church of Jesus, the disciples of Jesus, have spread throughout the Roman Empire, now numbering in the hundreds of thousands They've moved all the way into what we call Turkey today. Through North Africa, there are groups of followers of Jesus into the southern part of what we call England today and all through Europe. And they've never, to this point, built a church building. They meet in homes. They meet in public squares. There's very little internal organization. It's just people who have engaged with this message, who have found a new relationship with God that's different than anything they knew before, and they can't help talking about it. And so now the church has grown exponentially, and it's experienced great favor. Rome typically had no problem whatsoever because those followers of Jesus became very, very good citizens. They cared for the poor. They cared for the sick. Rome just couldn't complain about that. However, things have changed. It's now 63 AD. And here's what's changed. There's a new Roman emperor. His name is Nero. And Nero is having massive political problems. He's going to blame the fact that Rome burns on the Christians. He is going to begin to spread rumors that were incredibly detrimental to these Christians. He was going to tell people that this thing that they practiced called Eucharist or communion He's going to misunderstand it, and he's going to tell people that the Christian church is actually a group of cannibals. And they are, you know, these very, very challenging words that Jesus speaks about uh, participating in his death through communion. Nero is going to spread the rumor throughout the Roman Empire that they're actually eating a human being and drinking human blood. So as you can imagine, the Roman Empire is not sure what to do about this. So here's what's happened. Peter's in prison, and now... The church, for the first time, is greatly distressed. It's marginalized. It's been maligned by the things that Nero is saying. 
And right about 64 AD, we know that Peter will be killed by Nero. And we know that a persecution will break out. So before this happens, Peter writes this book. He writes it to the group of people, all the disciples living in what we call Turkey today. And so he's warning them, what are we going to do in the light of this new distress, these new challenges? What is the future going to look like? Eventually, within probably 18 months, thousands of these followers of Jesus are going to lose their lives. They're going to have their businesses taken from them. It's going to be a very difficult time. But Peter writes to them, and one of the things that he keeps saying is that you can keep your hope alive. No matter what happens, no matter who sits on the throne, no matter who's in charge, Listen, one of the fascinating things about Christianity is regardless of the political landscape, it's thrived. Right now, China, who years ago outlawed Christianity and punished leaders of churches, has no idea what to do because there are hundreds of millions of Christians in China, even as a communist regime has tried to suppress and destroy the church. Why in the world has the church been thriving in the midst of that environment? Well, it's because it's about an entirely different kingdom. It's not about a kingdom that has political power and influence or a kingdom that has military might. But it's this kingdom that Jesus talked about all the time. It's a kingdom of forgiveness is a kingdom of hope. It's a kingdom of becoming alive in God. It's a kingdom that's bringing about the restoration of all things, the, the healing of this world. That's why the church has always thrived. Does anybody remember how weird things got at the end of 1999? Some of you are a little young, but remember when the clock was going to get to, hit 2000? And everybody was terrified what would happen because remember, we didn't know if our computers would be able to register from 1999 to 2000. And people were like freaking out a little bit. Yeah? If you freaked out, that's okay. That's okay. I didn't know what to do. I have multiple friends come to me and say, Nate, what you have to buy if you're going to be a responsible person is they were selling box cars, train box cars full of wheat germ. And they said, if you will buy this box car of weed germ, you'll be really set for the apocalypse that's about to come. You can either like sell it or you can eat a lot of wheat yourself or wheat germ. I mean, there are all these things that were happening. And I was thinking, God, I don't know what to do. Like, is it really going to be that cataclysmic? And some people were filled with terror. Some people, we didn't know what to do. We just kind of watched and thought, I hope I shouldn't have bought that box of wheat germ because... Uh, <laughs> But I remember the night, like it's New Year's night, and nobody's really excited about 2000. We're just like wondering, will the world exist? You know, 10, 9, 8, will we be here in nine more seconds, seven? And like it changed. We're here. Glad I didn't buy the box car of wheat germ. We're, we're fine. I don't know what I would have done with it, right? Like, I, what do you do with that? When the future is uncertain, we don't know what to do. People get afraid. The future has always been a little uncertain. But here, here's what Peter writes to these people on the precipice 
of a major change. Literally, the climate, culture is going to change dramatically. And we're going to read the last part of chapter 1, beginning at verse 13. Where what Peter's going to do is he's going to, we're going to divide it into two sections. One is he's going to prepare them for action. Okay. Uh, all the things they could do, he's going to give them three things to do. And then secondly, he's going to remind them of their identity once again, which has been a major theme of this chapter. So in a world where they're distressed, they're marginalized, they're maligned and misunderstood, this is what Peter does. Let's read together 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll begin at verse 13 and read through the end of the chapter. Therefore, now this is important. What Peter's doing is he's linking it with everything he's already written in chapter 1. He's told them that they're elect exiles, that they're chosen, that God loves them. So all of this that he's done about their identity, he says, now because of that, therefore, because those things are a reality, with minds that are alert and fully sober. Okay, it doesn't just mean free from alcohol. It means you're, you're sharp, you're, you're engaged. Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. This idea of Jesus returning was paramount in the first century. And it has been to the church ever since for 2,000 years that he is returning. That's our great hope. We hold on. We live for that. We live as if it were tomorrow. Okay? As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had, past tense, when you lived in ignorance, before you heard the message of Jesus. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy, an Old Testament quotation. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you've been purified, and now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. Another Old Testament quotation. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. All the way up until this point, Peter has not talked about their behavior. He's going to leave that to this section. And he's going to begin it as he's going to talk about get ready for action with this phrase. He's going to say, therefore, because of what already happened, I want you in different translations, if you're reading along in your own Bible, we'll say different things. Um, some would try to modernize this and say something like roll up your sleeves, take off your jacket. The literal meaning is this, um, gird up your loins. Okay, so 
this would have been a vivid image to them. So let's go back to the first century, and this was what everybody wore. They wore, men in particular, wore long robes that went down just about to your ankle bones. Now, this was fashionable. This is how they lived. Still in Middle Eastern culture, there are people that dress like this. Now, the problem with that, think of a, a bride at a wedding. Okay, she's got a long dress. There's always this fear that you step on the front of your dress and fall. It's just not every bride's dream, right? And I did a face plant. And so what do you do? You have, to, you have to pull up your dress, right, as you're walking. Now, not that I'm experienced at this, but I've observed it many times. You have to pull up your dress so you can walk. So in the first century, this is how he starts it off. I want you to be ready for action. You don't know what's going to happen. We do know Nero's in power. We know that things are getting more and more inhospitable. So I want you to pull up your robes. So this is what he'd been common dress. You wore a thick leather belt just above the hips. And when it was time for a man to work, when it was time for action, you would literally loosen your belt, you would pull up your robes to knee height. So you went from men, you went from a dress to a skirt, okay? You pull them up knee height, and then you tighten your belt back down, but now you're ready to move. Now you're ready to do whatever is needed. You can respond. And so he says, in terms of what's coming, I don't know exactly, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to be ready, fully engaged. Prepare yourself. Men, pull up your dress. Get ready for whatever is coming. So here's the three points. He says, so, so get ready for action. Get prepared. He says, first of all, here's what I want you to do. I want you to refuse to be conformed. I want you to refuse to be conformed. He uses a very interesting word here, this idea of conformed. Conformed has to do with exterior pressure on an object shaping it. So if I had Play-Doh up here or clay, I could conform the Play-Doh by pressing it. So it's an outward pressure that makes it into a new shape. I manipulate it through pressure. So Peter says this, I want you to resist being conformed. He says, in your old way of life, you lived by your natural impulses. You, you live, the Bible calls it, by your flesh, uh, your instincts. And that your main purpose in life is self-gratification. How can I make myself happy? That ruled your ethics. That ruled your decisions. He says, but you have been transformed. So transformation is very different than confirmation. Confirmation. Transformed means there's an interior power working to shape you. So he's saying, you have been changed by the message of Jesus. Your life, your ethics, your decisions, you're a different person. But when things get difficult, here's what I want you to watch out for. Don't allow yourself to be conformed back to the way that you were. Guard against that. Guard against that desire to let your instincts rule. Self-preservation, self-gratification. Don't let that be the shaping force in your life any longer. The commentator by the name of Trevin Wax says this about this passage. I'm less concerned about what unbelievers will do to your body than I am what sin can do to your soul. This is fascinating. As Peter's saying, I get it. Nero's on the throne and he is breathing threats but your greatest vulnerability is not Nero. It's 
you being pushed back into the old way of living because you've been renewed. You've been changed. You're a different person. Not perfect. I get it. But resist that being conformed to your old shape. Here's the second point of action. He says, I also want you to so resist being conformed. I want you to set your hope on Jesus. I want you to set your hope on the grace that you'll receive when he returns for a second time. So last Sunday, after services, I went with my three boys and we went up to the archery range. We just haven't been shooting our bows very much all winter. And my 12-year-old beat me. It's always a competition. And he was very, very happy about that. But here's what you do. Okay, it's the same word to set your hope. It's the same word you would use in Greek for uh, aiming at something. So when you're aiming at a target, what do you do? You prepare and you are focusing on a singular point. All of your energy, literally, whatever is happening on the periphery, you don't even notice it. And so he says, set your hope, aim, place your hope. Not, not in money, not in people, not in the government, not in Nero. Don't, put your hope on Jesus Christ. Set your hope. Don't let it be distracted by other things. So don't conform. Set your hope. The third point of action, he says, is, and I want you to be holy. I want you to be holy. So this word holy is hagias, hagias. And its root word is to be different, to be different. So culture is changing. And he says, I want you. I mean, he hasn't talked about behavior in this whole chapter to this point. He says, but I want you to be different. What is culturally acceptable? Listen, I want you to be different. Why? Now, here's, here's the problem. When we talk about holiness, unfortunately, the church often reduces it down into a religious practice. Okay? Holiness, we think, well, I need to be better. I need to quit doing certain things. Why? So that I'll be accepted by God. So that he won't reject me. So that he will love me more. Everything that Peter has said previous to this is that you, when you're in Jesus... You're already accepted, you're already loved, you're already forgiven. There is nothing about your behavior that influences God's perspective of you. That's a little disturbing, right? I, I can't make God love me any more than he does at this moment. So he introduces a new way of being holy. He says, I want you to be holy because the God you follow is holy. Because your father is holy. Because he's different. Holiness isn't to earn God's favor. Holiness is this idea that I am a renewed person. I'm different. And because God's holy, because he's my father, because he's the one who began this in me, I want to be like him. Be holy because God is holy. Now let's move on to the second part, which I think is, is so important. So there's this action, but secondly... Paul is, uh, Peter is going to talk to them about their identity. And here's the big idea. Identity determines behavior. Identity determines behavior. This is very hard for religious people to understand. Because here's what we think. The, the idea of behavior, according to the Bible, is this. Is that 
Who you see yourself as, who you are, what God has done, actually determines how you act. So sometimes we think that effort determines behavior. Or intent determines behavior. If I would just try more, I wouldn't do that. And so we look at people who are doing something and it's self-destructive. And you're like, you need to just try to quit doing that. And what do they say? I'm trying not to do that. The problem is my effort isn't enough to change my behavior or my intent. I make a good decision. Like, I never want to do that again. That was terrible. If you, you, probably all of us have either experienced some addictive behavior in our life or someone we love and you're confused. You think, why do I do this? Why do they do this? Just make an effort. And they're saying, I make an effort. But my behavior doesn't change. This is a theme throughout the New Testament. Paul and Peter are going to write about this constantly. When they write to people who are having problems, moral issues, ethical problems, here's what they always do. They spend the first part of the book talking about their identity. This is who you are. And if this is truly who you are, then if you could embrace this new identity, it would change your behavior. Example, 1 Corinthians. People, I've heard this a lot, and I've actually said it at times. Boy, I wish we could get back to how the early church functioned. Right? Have you ever felt that? Well, it sounds like a great idea until you read the book of 1 Corinthians. That church was crazy. Like, it was crazy. Paul has to write multiple things. He goes, okay, okay, listen. When you pick leaders, could you please quit picking, like, deacons and elders who get into fistfights? That's just, that's not working for me. Like these guys that like, you know, they're duking it out. He says, and by the way, when you get together to celebrate communion, some of you guys are getting loaded. Like you're drinking so much of the wine that you're totally intoxicated. And you know what? That's not working either. That's just not appropriate. They've got these weird things. This guy's sleeping with his stepmom and they're like, we're such a great church. We allow anybody to be here. Paul's like, okay, listen, 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 the whole thing, the, the son and his stepmom, like, that's not working either. This is, this is pretty messed up. So what does he do when he writes his books to correct them? He starts by telling them who Jesus is and who they are. Because he knows the only way you change behavior is when you change your identity. And this core New Testament philosophy, think of how it impacts parenting. I'm not trying to modify my kids' behavior. I'm trying to get them to understand who they are because that's the thing that changes their behavior. Now, before we talk about this, I want to show you a picture. I came across this. This is a real product. You can buy this here in town. Okay, this, ladies and gentlemen, is called Enviro Color. Perfect solutions for pine straw, mulch, and grass. Got dormant grass? Question mark. EnviroColor makes it green again. 32 fluid ounces. So let me tell you about this product. If you've used this product, I am about to make fun of you. All right? <laughs> Hang in there. The whole idea behind this product is you come out and your grass is dead and crunchy. And you look at your neighbors and you're like, they've got such nice lawns. I need to fix this. I know what I'll do. I will buy EnviroColor. And it is actually a stain or a paint that can survive for up to a week. 
And so what you do is you go out and you take your dead, crunchy grass and you paint it green and you step back and you go, now I have a lawn like everyone else's. The problem is, is when you step on it, it still crunches. It's dead. It's painted dead grass. It actually does nothing. It is topical. It doesn't do anything to restore the core problem. Your grass is dead, but you can paint it and make, make it look green. What happens so often for people who are trying to follow Jesus is we get into a way of thinking where we think like this. Oh boy, my life is a mess. There's dead patches. It's brown. It's ugly. I'll just paint it. I'll try to look the part. I'll quit cussing. I'll stop doing that. I'll just watch the basketball game. I won't bet on it anymore. Oh, that looks good. I think that's who I'm supposed to be. But nothing has actually changed, right? I'll modify my behavior and I'll hope that my behavior changes my heart. But your behavior will never change your heart. The thing that changes us is our identity. And so Peter says to them, you have to remember who you are. Even when you don't feel that you measure up to this identity, even when you feel broken down inside, the way your life changes is you embrace what God has actually done that he has already accomplished these things. And then you begin to actually live it out. It becomes your identity. And once your identity changes, then your behavior begins to change with it. So here's what he says about their identity. Number one, as he tells them, remember that you're his child. I am his child. This is... If you have this perspective of God that he looks down and he's just, he tolerates you like, oh, there's Jim again. Another morning with Jim. Oh, that guy, you know, whose kid is he, right? If that's my perspective on God, I don't understand my identity as a son. Peter's going to wrap this whole idea of identity into this father-child relationship. So I am absolutely thoroughly convinced after reading the New Testament that God, as he is looking down at this moment, freeze frame this right here in this room, if you're on the internet, he's looking down and when he sees you, that's my girl. That's my boy. And he loves you and accepts us entirely and completely. And if I don't understand that relationship, I'll always be striving for acceptance. I'll always be striving for God to love me more. You and I are his children. Do we deserve that? No. What did I do to earn that? Nothing. Jesus paid a price so that my relationship with him could be altered forever. We are now children of God. He says, however, I want you to remember that he's a responsible father. And so he will help you grow up. He won't give up on you. And he also says, remember to approach your father with reverent fear. 
That's a little bit disturbing for us because we use the fear, the word fear, and we typically think about terror. It's what you feel when you watch a movie or when you're threatened by something. This is a different word. Probably the best word we have in English would be reverent awe. Where when I approach him, I, I understand I'm his child. I'm not trying to earn his last name. I'm not trying to earn his respect. I already have his love. And so I approach him with reverent awe. I'm just, I'm amazed. I don't take this lightly or flippantly. I just, I can't believe that you would love me like this. So that's your first, first core identity issue. You're a child. Secondly, he says, you got to remember that you're a foreigner. He's actually used this theme multiple times in this chapter. He says, you remember your elect exiles in the first part? And now he's going to come back to it. He goes, I want you to live your life as if you were foreigners. Foreigners. Uh, Jenny and I have a sister-in-law who's a Canadian, Anna. She married my brother, Tim, and we just, she's the greatest. Um, she moved to the U.S. to go to college, and we met her years and years ago. And here's what was great about having a Canadian sister-in-law. Well, we lived close to them for a lot of years. Is Canadians celebrate Thanksgiving like three weeks before we do? I loved having two Thanksgiving meals. She would make hers, and it was a big deal because it was Canadian. And she also has these, like, extra holidays, like Boxing Day. Have you ever asked a Canadian what Boxing Day is? They don't know. It's like a day where you shop, and it's happy, but they're not really sure why it's called that. It has nothing to do with fighting either. It was originally boxes. You put up boxes of gifts and gave it away to poor people. It had great origins. She lived in the U.S., and she gained U.S. citizenship. She lived... She, Formerly lived in Canada and she had Canadian citizenship. And her kids, my nephews and niece, have dual citizenship. And she thrives in either environment. I think that's exactly what Peter's saying. Here you are. You're part of the Roman Empire. And it's about to get a little bit awkward. But I want you to remember to thrive in the midst of the Roman Empire. However... Remember that you are also citizens of another kingdom. And your ultimate king does not reside in Rome. Your ultimate king, King Jesus, he calls the shots. And so you can travel and live in the midst of these two kingdoms, but you'll always feel a little bit awkward here on planet Earth because this is not your eventual home. So remember your child. Remember that you're a foreigner. And then thirdly, he says about your identity, remember that I am redeemed. I am redeemed. Now, what does that word mean? It means, it means to be bought back, to be bought back. Now, for us, we look at this, we're like, oh, that's nice, but what does that mean? If, you, if we were reading this, if we lived in 6380 and we read this automatically to our mind, would have, we would have known what, what Peter's getting at. So one-third of the Roman Empire... We're slaves, one-third. In, in slavery, it was a little bit different than our own tragic history with slavery, okay? Slaves were often professionals. So when Rome came in and conquered a new territory, if they needed doctors and accountants at home, what would they do? They'd find the best doctor, the best accountant in the city, and they would say, you now are the property of Rome, and you will come with us. And they would take, these Roman generals made a huge amount of money by taking professionals as well as laborers, bringing them back into the heart of the Roman Empire and say, hey, I've got a doctor here for sale. Who wants one? 
And that doctor would be purchased, that accountant, that merchant, that whatever it was, a laborer. They'd be purchased. So one-third of the Roman Empire is made up of slaves. The only way that a slave could ever get freedom is to be redeemed. It's the exact same word. But it was impossible to be redeemed. See, Roman law said that a slave could accumulate enough wealth to eventually buy their freedom back. But it never happened. As a slave, you had no income, and so you could never purchase yourself back. But there was the possibility that someone who deeply appreciated you, saw you as a human being rather than just a commodity and would save up an extraordinary amount of money and go to your master and say, I want to redeem your slave. I want to buy them. Now, as Peter uses this phrase, he says, you are redeemed. Not through silver and gold, but through the precious blood of Jesus who is the perfect sacrifice. We're going to talk about that next weekend when we get into Palm Sunday. The point is this. He says, when you come to your identity, you have to know you don't owe God anything. You have been purchased. You have been paid for. Everything that was wrong between you and God has been set right in Jesus. What he did on that cross purchased your freedom from this old way of living. You're not a slave any longer. Think of yourself as a free person. And when it comes to ongoing battles with sin, here's part of the identity issue. Some of us think, well, we identify ourselves by our sin. I am a, and your identity is linked to what you've done. And what Peter's saying, no, 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 you've been bought. I understand you may act that way on occasion, but that is not who you are because you were bought. When God looks at you, he does not see what you've done. He sees what Jesus accomplished on the cross. You are a free person. Well, I don't feel free. Well, begin to change your identity and you'll find freedom. Embrace what God is saying. So he says, you're a child, you're a foreigner, you're redeemed. Fourthly, he says, I love that he puts this in there with their identity. He says, you're one who loves people deeply. They're like, are you kidding me? I'm so introverted. I don't even like people. He says, no, no, here's part of your new identity. You love people deeply from the heart. I do? Yes, you do. Oh, okay. But when my identity begins to be transformed, like, actually, I love people. Because he brings this whole idea of loving into the realm of this father, right? He's your father, you're his child. Now here's part of the problem with that. If we have the same dad, what does that make us? Brothers and sisters. We're just one big dysfunctional family. <laughs> right? You have some weird siblings probably. Well, you got a room full of weird siblings here, but there's blood that ties us together. Right? And so he says, part of your identity is you just, you love deeply and from the heart. Then lastly, he shores up this idea of identity with this repeated phrase. This is the third time he mentions it in the chapter. He says, your identity is based on the fact that you are reborn. I am reborn. I am reborn. Now, Peter's going to get a little bit um, graphic here. Okay? We've, uh, the way we translate it, it kind of leaves some of the woo out of it. He says, okay, you've been reborn by God. That's your identity. 
He goes, but not with perishable seed. He's referring to physical, biological fathers. He said there, there was something that happened where biologically an egg was fertilized with perishable seed and you gained physical life. He says, but you have now been reborn with imperishable seed, meaning it's not of human origins. So the idea is this, is that yes, I'm a biological entity, but he says, you have to remember your identity is based on this idea that now you're a spiritual entity. That this imperishable seed, he says it's the word, capital W-O-R-D, entered your life and rebirth happened. Something new was started. We're, we're spiritually, we were dried up and dead. When his word came, we became alive. Now, why is it word? I mean, it just seems a little bit odd. Think for a moment, if, if you were Hebrew, as Peter is, the idea of the words of God means something more, much more uh, 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 grand than what you or I might think of. So if we went to the, the very first chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, this is the, there's nothing, right? There's this watery chaos of earth. And how does God create life? He speaks. Let there be light. And there was light. The idea of the words of God creating life is interlaced throughout this book. And so even you see it in Jesus. He'll find someone and he'll say to them, you are forgiven. It is very words they experience freedom. You are healed. And at his words, they, they, they create something. There's healing that happens. And so what Peter is saying is, just as God spoke this world into existence, when you heard the message of Jesus, it started something. You're now spiritually alive. That's your identity. You can't think of yourself as spiritually sickly. You can't think of yourself as spiritually empty. You are alive. When this message of Jesus was spoken into your life, you became someone entirely different. That is your identity. Identity determines behavior. Otherwise, I am going to be trying to paint myself to look like a follower of Jesus. I'll camouflage what's broken. I'll try whatever I can to cover. But it's when I understand who I am that life begins to grow. Will you pray with me? Lord, Even though it's been thousands of years, there's, there's some similarities here. There were a group of distressed believers who weren't sure what the future held, and they were afraid. And Peter writes to them that their hope can and will be alive, no matter what happens culturally. There is nothing. This world has never invented something that would suppress the message of Jesus. The kingdom of Jesus, the restoration of all things, renewed and alive people can't be held back by any force. Lord, 
I pray that we would be ready. I pray that we would be holy, but not because we're trying to earn your respect, but because you're holy. I pray that we would not be conformed. But we don't want to go back to the old ways. But instead, we'll be transformed. And Lord, for all of us, I think it is so easy to play the game of religion where we try to paint over the dead areas of our life and hope that no one sees that there's actually death. We try to make it pretty for you. We try to make it pretty for other people. In reality, we pray this. We pray that we would embrace our new identity, that ways of thinking. Some of us have had words spoken into us that have paralyzed us. And our identity is based upon some lie a lie that we've told ourselves, a lie that someone told us, and now we're going to act according to that lie because identity determines behavior. But Lord, I pray that we would replace those false identities with the ideas that we are your children, that we are foreigners, that we are redeemed, that we are people who actually love deeply and that we are people who have experienced a rebirth. And when our identities are based upon that, life begins to change naturally because we understand who you are and we understand who we are in you. I just want to make a brief moment here for anyone. If you would say, maybe, maybe you'd say this, Nate, I... I feel like that picture of dead grass. I want to please God. I don't know how to do it. Something's determining my behavior. And I find myself just in cyclical battles. And maybe what you realize is you're missing that rebirth process. Your identity hasn't been shaped or formed into something new. And even it's, I mean, these are just words that I'm saying but God is speaking something to you today. And it's his words that birth something in you. And if you need that rebirth today, a new start, that there would be actual life, a spiritual reawakening, if that's you and you need that today, would you do this just boldly? Raise your hand and wave at me. I want to make eye contact with you. Yes, yes, sir. Yeah, you're made new. Yeah, right there as well. It's beautiful. You're new in him in the center section, if that's you. Yes, ma'am. You're his daughter. You're forgiven. Yeah, right in the back. Absolutely. You're made new over here as well. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, yes, ma'am. You're his. You're forgiven. You're made new. Yes, yes, ma'am. You're his daughter. Don't you ever forget that. And in the balcony, if that's your wave. Yeah, okay, there. There, yep. I see your hands. Okay, all three or four of you in the back row right here as well. Yeah, beautiful. In this section over here. Anybody, if that's you, wave at me, would you please? Okay, wonderful. Thank you. Okay, in the back. Yeah, I see your hand. Thanks for being persistent. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. All right, would you open your eyes? Hey, we're told in the book of Luke that all the angels in heaven celebrate when one person makes that decision. So there must be quite the party going on in heaven right now. You are reborn, remade. It's the beginning of a lifetime journey.